Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, for a moment to remember anew the resurrection of your Son. Lord, help us worship and draw close. Amen. I've preached this passage from John 20 a number of times. And I feel like every time I walk away from preaching John 20, I realize that I have only scratched the surface. This passage is so rich, so dense, so thick. Even the incident with Thomas is more important than you might realize. On the surface, it seems like just one of those funny moments with the disciples of Jesus. But in reality, this is the theological conclusion to the book of John. John 1.1 opens with the declaration, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The declaration that Jesus is God himself in the flesh. John 1 goes on to declare the fact that the Word came close, dwelt among us, came to his own, but his own did not recognize him did not see him. This sets up one of the sort of the great underlying tensions of the entire gospel of John. Will anyone recognize the word? Will anybody realize who this is? This is the tension that lurks below the surface in the gospel of John. This is why at the center point of the gospel, There's the longest description of a miracle, of any of the miracles in John, and it's all about a man's sight being restored, and the question that's asked over and over and over by the man and by the Pharisees is, who is this person who healed you? Who is he? Who is he? The question of will you see who Jesus is lurks below the surface. When you realize that, suddenly things like the woman at the well make perfect sense. Who is this person that I'm talking to? Who is the Messiah? There's so many incidences that begin to fall into place. Jesus in the garden saying, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And they fall back. The question of will you recognize who this person is lurks under the surface of this book. But it's not till we get to Thomas. Good old skeptical, pragmatic, pessimistic Thomas that we finally hear a person say, you are my God. Thomas resolves the tension of the book. Bumbling Thomas, the Eeyore, the one who, when Jesus was in danger of being killed when he was going to Lazarus, said, well, I just might as well go and die with him. Or the one at the Last Supper when Jesus said, I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again. You know where I'm going. And Thomas's response is, Lord, how do we know the way? We don't know where you're going. Good old bumbling Eeyore Thomas, he's the one who finally at the end pronounces out loud what the reader has known from the beginning, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And Thomas blurts it out in worship, my Lord and my God. John is a master storyteller. And so at this point, when Thomas's confession has been made, he breaks the fourth wall. He addresses his audience directly. In verses 30 and 31 of this chapter, he actually turns and he looks at you and me and says, this is why I wrote these things down. I wrote them down so that you might believe. If you're quick and you notice that I called chapter 20 the conclusion of this book, 
and you say, wait, there's another chapter that follows after. Every good story needs an epilogue. But Thomas's confession resolves the tension of the book. Like I said, there's so much in this chapter. As I looked back at the various sermons that I've written or preached about this chapter, it was striking to me that it seems like I've been fixated on the concepts of fear and peace over the last few years. I did a lot over the last few years every time I looked at this passage with the fact that Jesus declares peace to people who are terrified and ashamed. Given that I've done that too many times in a row, I'm going to steer away from it this year. This passage comes up every year at this time. So don't worry, there's plenty more times to go back to one of those other things, to talk more about Thomas, to talk more about peace. Today I want to talk about this word that Jesus speaks when he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is where I want to focus our attention today, that we have been sent by the Father. If the question who will recognize the eternal word, lurks below the surface of the Gospel of John. If it lurks there and is constantly present but rarely stated, if that lurks there, the fact that the Son has been sent by the Father is the most explicit repetitive theme of this book. Over and over and over in the Gospel of John, Jesus says things like this, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Or a few verses later, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or a few verses later, he says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Or just a few verses later, he says, all that he has given me I will raise up on the last day, because this is the will of the Father. Or a few verses later, he says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I could go on, and I'll sort of try to not put you all to sleep by reading every single one of the passages. But if you start looking up the words, He sent me, or the Father who sent me, or just sent, what you'll realize is throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus says this over and over and over. It's by far the most explicit theme. The Father has sent the Son. If we were to say, well, why did the Father send the Son? And I know at this point I'm asking questions where like, well, duh, we all know the answer. John 3.16, right? We know the answer. And indeed we do. But it's good to take a few minutes to dwell on the fullness of the answer. The Father sent the Son to manifest the life of God in the flesh, to reveal God in the flesh. The Father sent the Son to declare the words of God. The Father sent the Son to do the works of God, the signs, the miracles of God. The Father sent the Son to suffer, particularly on the cross. One of those other frequent themes in John that the suffering of the Son was the purpose for which he came, even his glory. The Father sent the Son to conquer death through the resurrection. Throughout the Gospel of John, different answers are given to this question, why is the Son sent? But we could sum them all up 
by saying that the Father sent the Son to save the world by giving life. That really is the sort of summary that I want to cling to this morning. That the Father sent the Son to save the world by offering life. It's important for us to understand what it means that he came to save the world by offering life. Too often when we think of these things, we simply say, this means that I'm forgiven of my sins so that one day I get to go to heaven where I will live forever. That's what we think this means. He came to save the world by offering life. That, by the way, is completely true. He did indeed come to forgive us of our sins so that we could live forever with him. But like many true answers, it's very small. And John's portrayal is actually much larger, much richer, much deeper. On Good Friday, Justin reminded us of something that you've probably heard us say sort of ad nauseum that John is a retelling of the book of Genesis. It's the new creation told in the life of Jesus. This is why it begins in the beginning. John is consciously saying the world is being recreated. Jesus' rescuing of the world, his saving of it by giving his very life, is much more than just you or me being forgiven. It is new creation itself. Our being forgiven is a necessary and central part of this. In fact, you could say it's the first essential step. It's the part that without this, if it doesn't happen, nothing else happens. But it is not the whole. Jesus saving the world by giving his life, by giving it his life, actually involves creating a whole new creation, creating a whole new world, a new creation in the midst of darkness. It involves creating a new creation where God's purposes for the old are finally fulfilled. This is actually what I want to explore for just a minute. John frames his gospel as Genesis 2.0, the new Genesis, the new creation. And whatever we think of, Jesus came to save the world by giving it life. We need to understand it in light of that, that this is the new creation going on. In order to do that, then, that means we have to actually understand the old creation. What did God want from it? What's happened to it? And I'll be fast here, because you all know the story, but I want to highlight a particular element of the old creation that we frequently forget. You see, God created the world, and he created man and woman But he created man and woman with a very particular role in mind. They were his image. There was a purpose. There was a reason for existence. It wasn't a negotiable, if you'd like, go do this. It wasn't, if you're good, go do this. This is the very reason man and woman exist. The very reason you and I exist. Man and woman were created as God's representatives. They were created as God's viceroys, his stewards, and they were created to do something. They were created to rule over creation. I'm convinced that this is one of those thoughts that we don't think about enough and we don't think about very well. And if you want to see what this looks like in novel form, 
I would encourage you to read C.S. Lewis's Paralandra. He explores this so beautifully, this idea that we are created to rule as God's representatives over creation. And this is a rule that is so great and so big that in the end, it ends with us being co-heirs with the Son of God himself. He set us up as judges over all of creation, a judgment that even includes judging the angels. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. We were supposed to be the lords of all of creation, governors, stewards of it all. By the way, we don't know whether this is true, but there's an ancient, ancient belief that this was the very reason that Satan rebelled, that he saw God's plan for humanity, a plan that was so great that they would rule over all of creation and even rule over and judge the angels. And Satan said, I want no part of that that this was the root of his rebellion. Think what Pharaoh did with Joseph. You are Lord of my kingdom. Do with it what you want. You can rule over the entire thing. Think what a noble baron might do with a trusted butler. Everything in my house is under your control. You govern the whole thing. Think what the wealthy might do with a great financial advisor. Here are my accounts. Here's it all. You govern it for me. This is what God created man and woman for. Psalm 8 is actually sort of programmatic. In Psalm 8, we hear that mankind has been crowned with glory and honor. And the psalmist goes on to say, you have set all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the fields, all the birds of the heavens, the fish that swim through the paths of the sea. All of it has been placed under the feet of mankind, crowned, with glory and honor. This is God's purpose, that with his image set as lords over creation, his representative set as governors, viceroys over all the rest, through a benevolent and wise and perfect rule, mankind would bring about flourishing, life, glory, beauty, and peace. This is the design. It's exquisite. Us ruling all and bringing about life. That was the point of the old creation. But mankind rejected God's plan. Instead of ruling in his name, in his image, and thus bringing about life and flourishing and peace, we rejected God. And we took for ourselves the right to determine what is right and wrong. And consequently, we brought death, sickness, and destruction. We brought the opposite of what we were supposed to bring to all of the rest of creation. Death instead of life, sickness instead of flourishing, destruction instead of peace. In our folly, we still believe that we can actually eliminate these things. We still, year after year, in spite of our track record, think that we can bring peace. We still, year after year, in spite of our track record, think that we can bring health. We still, year after year, in spite of our track record, think that we can end sickness. We think that if we find the right policy, that if we have enough science, that we can do it. We will fix the problems of the world, and finally there will be no more hunger, no more death, no more sickness, no more war. All the things that we have caused 
because we rejected God's purpose. It's still true that God has not removed his grace. There is beauty here that God has not removed his hand in entirely. And many of the works that we do do indeed bring about life and peace. It's not that it's futile. But just as frequently as we do a work to bring about life or peace, we cause death or destruction. There's a backside to everything that we do. There's a backside. This was the state of all things. This is the state of the world. Yet God did not abandon his plan. And this is actually the sort of important point that I want you all to hear. He didn't abandon the plan for mankind to rule. He didn't throw the towel in and say, enough of this. I'll do something a different way. He was still fixed on his purposes. Creation would be ruled by man and woman. And so God, in his wisdom, sent his son. But how did he send him? He sent him in the flesh as a man. Do you see that he's not abandoning his purposes for creation here? He sends his son as a man to bring life to the world. We're back where we started. The one sent to save the world by bringing life. But sent as a man. This was why God was incarnate. He accomplished what he desired, but he accomplished it himself by the word of God, the eternal son becoming flesh, becoming man, humbling ourselves to himself to our place by absorbing our evil, by dying the death that we had caused, and by rising to begin creation anew in life. This lands us where we are today. That's the backstory. And if y'all thought, wow, that's a lot of backstory, don't worry. The conclusion's much shorter. Lands us where we are today. Because we see in this passage, in the resurrection, the most staggering thing occurs. God doesn't just accomplish his purpose for creation by doing it himself. God becoming man so that man will indeed be the ruler over all and so that life will indeed now be given to all, all of the evil absorbed into one so that what was to have been now actually is. He did those things, but he doesn't actually stop there. He did those things, but now he invites all of those who are his own, all of those who are his own back into his purpose back into his plan. This was what I meant when I said that this whole sermon is an exploration of as the Father has sent me, so I send you. The people of God, you and me, we are invited back into the role that we failed at. Humanity failed God becomes man to do the role that humanity has failed to do because he will not give up his purpose that man will do it. So he does it as a man. But he doesn't say, now we're done, things clear. At that point, he looks at us and he says, now now step back into what you were always supposed to have done in the beginning. Step back in to accomplish my plan as my viceroy, as my governor, as my steward, as my image. Step back in to rule over creation in my name 
as my image. Go bring life and flourishing. As the Father has sent me, why was the Son sent to bring life to the world? So I send you. That's where we are. Sent to bring life to the world. This, by the way, is why Jesus extends to his followers even the right to forgive sins. As stunning as that is, forgiveness, God's alone to grant. But he gives it to his followers. And he says, go take this gift out to the world. Go address the very root, the heart where things went awry. Go find the place where people are broken and heal those places. Bring forgiveness. As the Father has sent me, I send you. The very work that we were supposed to have done from the beginning. In his grace, we get invited back into. We can't do this, though, without being recreated. There's not a single one of us who has the strength or grace or power to do this. We are shot through with our own sin, and we cannot do this without being recreated. Remember, John is retelling Genesis. John is retelling the creation narrative, God remaking the world for his own purposes. It's actually in this passage where John does something exquisite and beautiful. Jesus breathes on his disciples. He breathes on them. Receive the Spirit, he says. This is Genesis 2-7 all over again. The breath of life from God himself. Recreation in the moment. It would be foolish to say to his disciples, as the Father send me, so I send you. Good luck. No, he breathes on them. He recreates them. At this moment, the book of Genesis reaches its peak. Like I said, chapter 20 is the conclusion. 21 is an epilogue because here is the sixth day of creation where God forms man and woman and breathes the breath of life in. We cannot do this without being recreated. The Spirit offered, new creation begun. But the beauty of that is that we find at Pentecost, Peter saying, all who are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit receive the Spirit. New creation begun in your life, in my life. And to those who are recreated, who are full of the Spirit and the very breath of God, Jesus says, I now send you into the world to accomplish my desires. As the Father sent me, so I send you. I send you to bring life and healing, peace and flourishing. It's a stunning picture. And to be honest, I've likely said little that you didn't already know. The thing that I want to grab you, though, this morning is very simply the call that lays on every single one of us. We've been sent by the Father through the Son. The Son has said to us, I send you. We could not do it in our own strength. But in his recreation of us, in the gift of the Spirit, this is the calling that lies upon us. 
like the first creation, it is not a negotiable affair. We don't get to say, if I have time for it, or if I'd like it. This is what God has designed for all of creation. That you and me, that we as his images, his standard bearers, his stewards, his governors, would step forth into the world and rule it the way he would, in tenderness and kindness, bringing mercy and justice, showing life. It's a beautiful picture, the call that rests on our life. There's so much we could take away from this. There's so many things that we can say. One of the very first things that I was struck by as I sort of wrestled with the end of all of this, the summation of it, is just very simply the reality that your life is actually more significant than you know. Your life matters more than you think it does. It matters more to God than you could ever dream because his call for you is to be his steward over creation. His call for you is to bring life to those who are in death. His call for you is to bring light into places of darkness. Your life matters more than you think. There is no such thing as an ordinary life. Another thing that we could take away from it, another thing that sort of struck me as I thought about these, is that we should expect exactly what John 1 says about the Son. If as the Father has sent me, so I send you, well then what happens with the Son? And we hear of the Son in John 1 that he was a light shining in the darkness, but the darkness did not understand him. We should expect that as well then if we are sent in his name. A light shining in the darkness, but the darkness does not understand it. We shouldn't be shocked to be misunderstood. The beauty of that verse, though, is that John purposely picks a verb that's got two meanings. Understand can also mean conquer. And you can just as easily translate that verse, the light shone in the darkness, but the darkness could not overcome it. Expect to be misunderstood, but you will never be conquered if you stand in the light of the sun. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. There's so many things that we could say out of this, but the one that I want to close with is very simple, but very prominent in the book of John. And that is very simply that we do not accomplish this by our strategies. We don't accomplish this by being smart. We don't accomplish this by picking the right method. Throughout the Gospel of John, the thing that is proclaimed over and over, implicitly and explicitly, perhaps most clearly in John 15, abide in me. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but if you abide in me, you bear much fruit. Abide in me. If you, the reason why I want to stop here and end here even though there's so much more to be said, is if we hear this message that says, you are light in the darkness, as the Father has sent me, I have sent you. You, if you're like me, go, how do I do it? How do I do it? What's the method? Give me one, two, three, the steps that I need to do. What are the techniques? What class do we need to take to learn to do this? But Jesus' method throughout the Gospel of John is not a method. It is very simply the call to abide in, this, in the Father. His prayer is that we would be unified with him 
And he says, if that occurs, the fruit follows after. He even says that of his own work, this first sent one, that I and the Father are one. He emphasizes unity with the Father over and over. And this is the method. Unity with the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. This is the method. So the call for us this morning, rejoice in the fact that you've been recreated. Hear the call on your life to be sent as the Son was sent and recognize that you don't do this unless you abide in the Son, unless you abide in the Son. Amen.